Last week, we started our Lenten sermon series, and we started to talk about how forms of white Christian nationalism have always been an undercurrent in our culture, and right now that we're on an upswing of visibility. And so we are looking at Jesus, and we're looking at what it means to be faithful to his teaching in times such as these. So this morning, I want to talk about how Jesus related to power. And so to do that, we are going to start out by reading a story from John chapter 8. If you got the handout, it's a little bit of a longer one, and we're just going to dive right in. It says, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all of the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. All right, so first off, we see the setup of this story is between Jesus and some, it says, teachers of the law and Pharisees. And I just want to point out that Jesus himself was a teacher of the law, and Pharisees were his peers, right? Some of whom he was friends with, some of whom he had really sharp disagreements with, right? So this isn't a story about how, quote-unquote, Christian Jesus is arguing with Jewish teachers. This is a disagreement that is happening within a faith in the same way that I have sharp disagreements with pastors who have particular readings of scripture. So for context here, the day before, Jesus had really ticked off some fellow religious leaders. They were all at a large festival in the temple, and he had made quite a commotion. So here he is, he's the following day, he's strolling back into the same temple, and he goes in and he sits down, which is the posture of a respected Jewish rabbi, and a crowd starts to gather. Well, overnight, some of those people that Jesus had embarrassed the previous day had had a little bit of time to strategize how they could make him look bad, right? So we noticed that they didn't come along until the crowd had already gathered because they wanted to make Jesus look as foolish as they could in front of as many people as they could. And so they arrested this woman who they claimed was caught in the act of adultery, and they brought her to Jesus in front of this big crowd. So first question how do religious teachers catch someone in the act of adultery? In what corners were they lurking? How do you find adultery on demand? <laughs> I think it's possible they may have just found a vulnerable woman who they rounded up to play the part. Second, if she was indeed caught in adultery, adultery doesn't happen alone, does it? Where is the man? Presumably a man. A very strict interpretation of the Jewish law would dictate that they both be stoned. So if these teachers were so zealous for following a very strict interpretation of the law, it seems like they themselves were disregarding part of it. So that tells us it wasn't actually about preserving the law, but about public humiliation of Jesus. And the third thing that I note is they don't use the woman's name, right? They are not concerned about her as a person. She's a prop. 
Another important aspect of this story is the setting, right? So it's the work that was on this brand new temple had just recently been completed, like in the last few years. It had been rebuilt by Herod the Great, who was a puppet of the Roman Empire. And since Rome wanted to control the Jewish population, Rome had built a giant, or Herod had built a giant fortress right next to it. And so you had this fortress of Roman soldiers overlooking the courtyards where the people mingled. Josephus, who was an early Jewish historian, he wrote about how soldiers would patrol the walkways and the crowds during the major feasts, right? So Roman soldiers are an unmentioned presence in this story, right? So in the minds of the people who are questioning Jesus, he had two choices stone her, right? If he said that, it would prove that he knew the law, he interpreted it very literally, and he was zealous enough for God to enforce it. And if he had done that, it would have caused a commotion, and it would have gotten him arrested. John's gospel tells us that the Romans wouldn't let the Jewish people put anyone to death for any reason, because all of that fell under Roman jurisprudence. That was in John 18. So he could have done that, or he could have said something like, okay, guys, you know, we're all, we're all leaders here, there's soldiers watching. Let's just kind of like, let's let her go. Like, we didn't, nobody here wants to get into trouble. We all just kind of know, right? And that would have looked like he was willing to compromise his faith for his own personal safety, which would have made him look like a coward or a hypocrite. Right? So either he gets arrested or he gets discredited and looks weak, and they think that they have him. But of course, Jesus doesn't choose either of those options. He looks at that and he says, this is a false dichotomy. And he bends down and he starts writing in the dirt. Why does he do that? Well, in Jewish law, the day after a major feast, which it was, is also considered a Sabbath, right? Even if it's not a Saturday. So it's a day when no one is allowed to do work. And rabbis at the time, and even many Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jewish people today, considered writing to be work, right? So writing is work, but writing in the dirt is not work because it doesn't create a permanent mark. So like writing in the dirt is kind of a loophole. And so in doing this, what Jesus is doing is he's communicating like, hey, I know my stuff, right? It's kind of like what I have to do when I argue. Like, you're like I know the Bible in and out. I just disagree with you, right? He's saying, I know my stuff. I know the law says that today's the Sabbath. I know I'm not supposed to write, but I also understand that I am able to write in the dirt or the dust because I'm up on the modern interpretation and application of the scripture, which is how I always hear that in my head. Right? They wanted to discredit him, but the simple action he displays, like he knows he has a thorough knowledge of the law and of the developing oral tradition, the Mishnah. And we have no idea what he wrote. It probably doesn't matter. But when he stands up, he acknowledges that the judgment of the law says the woman should be stoned. And then he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to cast the stone. Right? So they want him to make a decision and potentially get arrested but instead, he, has, he asks one of them to put their name and face on that judgment, right? To take responsibility for what they were asking him to do. He's like, fine. If this is what you actually think would happen, then you go ahead and do it right here in front of the Roman soldiers. And he knew that they wouldn't. He knew that they were projecting their own hypocrisy onto him. And so the elders leave and everybody follows. Woman, where are they? Has nobody condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I. So what I want us to see here is how Jesus used the power that he had. Because he did have power, right? He had the power to save this woman's life and her reputation 
and he had the power to make her accusers go away, which is how he chose to exercise the influence that he had. He also had the power, had he chosen, to use scripture against her and turn her in, right? either to the Roman authorities or to the religious teachers. Adultery was illegal for women in the Roman Empire. Anybody hear that? Adultery was illegal for women <laughs> in the Roman Empire. So if Jesus had done this, she may well have been put to death, as that was the penalty under the Roman law. And she had several esteemed men accusing her, and so she likely would have been found guilty even had she been innocent. And she may or may not have been innocent, but that does not seem to be the thing Jesus is focused on. Jesus chose instead to use his power to advocate for the vulnerable woman and protect her, right? Not to win points with either his religious buddies or with the Roman government, both of which would have served him to earn points with at this point. He, he chose instead to interpret the scripture generously. He did it in a way that was merciful and humane and that cost him. Right, so he used the power that he had to put his own esteem, ultimately his own safety, on the line. And this is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Right, Jesus' loyalty was to love above all. Love, kindness, and justice over scoring points for power, or creating a faith that excluded this woman from mercy and from community. Right? We know that the common people loved Jesus. Right? They, they followed him all around. They went from town to town. And they loved him because he didn't weaponize scripture against them. And he didn't weaponize their vulnerabilities, their poverty, their health, their status as slave or free, their gender, and again, Jesus was not alone in his time, right? There was a strong Jewish stream of thought that he was part of. He was just clearly very effective and compelling teacher. And people wanted to hear what he had to say because it was good news. So I want to contrast that way of using power with a theology that is a piece of, it's not all of it, but it's a piece of what's driving white Christian nationalists. Not all ascribe to this, but I would say there is a very potent element of American Christianity that is influenced by something called dominion theology or dominionism. Have any of you guys heard of this? Few of you. No, not yet, but I'm glad to see you, Paul. It's good to see you again. Um, yeah, I come from this stream, so I kind of know it well. And it's bigger than you think. There's a, this is off notes, but sociologists are calling it independent network charismatic Christianity, INC Christianity. Uh, it's the fastest growing sect of uh, faith in the United States and in the world right now. It's a good book I can give you if you would like to read more. But dominion theology is no small thing. It comes from a misreading of Genesis 1 to 3. So Genesis chapter 1, God tells the humans right after making them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue, have dominion over it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. All right, so this idea of subduing the earth and ruling over its creatures, including humans, originates from this one verse. Now they've extrapolated on it, but this is like the origin of it. So to take this idea and then run with it, I think ignores the next two chapters of Genesis and quite a lot of the rest of the Hebrew texts. 
Um, I've given a sermon on this within the last year um, and about how humans have never been given unbridled authority over nature or over other humans in the Bible. So I'm not going to linger on that this morning. I think I did that last summer. But I just want you to be aware that that's where they're getting this idea from, that humans are the top of creation and should dominate, right? And this is an idea that has resulted in the destruction of the environment and it's justifying authoritarianism. And some of the people who adhere to this idea that God told us to dominate took the theology even further, right? So there's something called the Seven Mountains Mandate. Did any, have any of you heard of that? Yeah, well, quite a few more of you. I was taught it a few times growing up in different places. Seven Mountains Mandate, or 7M, is a domination strategy. And it says that there are seven major areas of society that need Christian domination. Education, religion, family, business, government and military, arts and entertainment, and media. Right, so Christensen and Flory of Biola, the ones who wrote the really good book on INC Christianity, they said this model of social transformation is clearly top-down or trickle-down model. Right, so in other words, the more influential somebody becomes, the more social transformation one can affect. I mean, that's true. But what they believe is that God blesses sometimes ruthless pursuit of power of followers who are willing to use their authority to further a narrow interpretation of godliness. Right, so the objective of influencing one or more of these mountains has caused many evangelicals and Pentecostals to a lesser degree, mainline Protestants and Catholics, to turn their heads away from the illegal behavior of a number of top politicians in the last few years, right? And the thinking is, well, God will use imperfect people to achieve this ultimate goal of dominating the government because the end goal of having this certain brand of Christian in places of power is worth the trade-off to the Lord, right? What's a little lying and cheating and stacking courts and treason if you ultimately win? And because of this, alarm bells in some Christian circles were drowned out about dangerous leadership that has resulted in false claims of a rigged election, a violent and deadly attack on the Capitol that killed many police officers and wounded over a hundred. And they did that because power has become a sacred entitlement in this religious subculture. This is what I want you to hear. They don't care about democracy. They care about dominion. And I've been writing about this for years on a blog. It's just not compatible. And it's not everybody, but there are some who are quite openly, they don't care about democracy. They care about dominion. I know we've had Dr. David Gushy has preached here a few times. You guys know him. He's a friend of our congregation. He is a top ethicist. He wrote a book this last fall called Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies that I would highly recommend. It's a very good book. Um, people are seeing this. They care about theocracy. They care about creating a religious state. And if authoritarian behavior gets them dominion, they will take it. Another good book that is very readable that I would recommend to you, American Idolatry by Andrew Whitehead. Also a very good one to take a look at if you're interested. Um, I'm going to use a quote from him. He says, within the cultural framework of Christian nationalism, sharing power within a pluralistic democratic society is akin to being a welcome mat, being stomped on, or being bullied on a playground. Either their interpretations of the Christian faith are given precedence throughout society, or they're under attack and being silenced and persecuted. The narrative is this stark. There is no middle ground. 
Now, when I preached last week that we are to be a people of counter-empire, right, not a people of empire, I do want to be clear that I don't mean that Christians can't work for the government or can't seek political office or have influence. Right? I would say a functioning democracy is better for minorities than authoritarianism. Perfect, no. Better than authoritarianism, yes. Functioning social services that are run with integrity help communities thrive. Right? Social service is admirable. But seeking power specifically to use the levers of empire to impose laws and rules that favor a particular brand of Christianity, whatever it is, in this case, a puritanical form of Christianity, is counter to the project that Jesus calls us to. I'm going to give an example because there was a good one this week. I mean, a scary one this week. If you live in Alabama, you now cannot get IVF treatment for help getting pregnant because of this puritanical Christianity that's being imposed on everyone, whether you're that brand of Christian or not. 61% right, of Americans who have been pulled think health insurance should cover this treatment. Another 25% say, oh, I don't know. Like, there's not real strong feelings against it, right? Most people are fine, and yet it's being outlawed. And the thing that was scary was reading through the, the, the judge, uh, the chief justice of that court, Tom Parker, reading through his um, reasoning was quite frightening to me. It was, quite, uh, it was theocracy in action. He invoked the Bible and a bunch of Reformed theologians, um, here's what he wrote. Human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God. He wrote in a concurring opinion that invoked the book of Genesis, the prophet Jeremiah quoted at length from the writings of 16th and 17th century theologians. All right, so people who ascribe to dominionism are vocal about their desires to limit the rights of people who may judge immoral. Right, but Jesus did not going around telling people they couldn't participate fully in the community. Right? He did the opposite. He went around telling people who were judged by some to be immoral that they were beloved of God, that they were worthy of dignity and respect and belonging. And he regularly interacted with and touched people who would have made him ceremonially unclean. And instead of accepting this idea that they made him unclean, he said their touching him actually restored them. Does that make sense? Like, not getting tainted. The connection between them was what made them all clean. It's what reduced shame. And that's what Christians should be about, right? We embrace the quote-unquote untouchables in the American caste system and affirm God's unrelenting and overwhelming love for them, for us, for me. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the church must be reminded it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. We are not the master of the state. We are the conscience of the state. When we seek power to dominate, instead of using power to protect and advocate, we are misunderstanding our Christian path. We should protect our neighbor's rights as we would our own, even if we disagree with what they're doing. We're not the judge, God is. And that's how we love our neighbors as ourselves. And it's how we remain humble in our view of ourselves and our place of the world, right? We are not the top eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dominating and dispensing our self-righteous laws. It's an age-old tale of humans wanting to be like God and it actually being the source of our misery. And again, this isn't what's driving all white Christian nationalists, but it is a significant stream of it. And I think it's the part that the church needs to name and needs to address. 
I'm just going to leave us um, with this thought. One of the symbols that the dominionists have adopted is something called the pine tree flag or an appeal to heaven flag. I don't know if any of you have seen it or know much about it. Probably not in this crowd. Um, it's white. It's got a pine tree in the middle of it, and it says an appeal to heaven across the top. Seven, uh, several of the people who attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th had that flag. So if you go back and look at some of the pictures, you will see it. In 2019, it was flown over the Illinois State Capitol to promote a day of prayer. Our last president tweeted a video clip of it when it was waved during one of his visits to a megachurch in Las Vegas. In 2015, when they were ruling on same-sex marriage at the Supreme Court, which made Rachel and I legal, we'd gotten married the week before, um, <laughs> the people protesting outside had used that flag as their symbol. It's been seen at Proud Boy rallies. And today that flag hangs outside the office of Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House of Representatives, the third in line to the presidency. So while dominionism might just be one factor in this political movement, it is not an insignificant one. And I want us to remember together how Jesus used power, and we want to emulate that instead. Be generous in our interpretations of scripture, refrain from condemning people, and advocate for the vulnerable. All right, with that, it's kind of a heavier, longer one. Sorry, but it's got to be said, I think. Let's just take a minute. We'll just have a little silence and meditation. People make noise. I'm not worried about a little noise. But let's just let the Spirit do whatever the Spirit is doing in us. Come, Lord. The Holy Spirit, I ask for your comfort for those of us who feel really vulnerable right now. I also ask that you would help us when we are in positions of power to use that power to advocate, um, to use it wisely, to lead us not into temptation, um, to use power for our own means or to extend our own moral judgments, but that we would follow the lead of your Son, Jesus who advocated for the powerless and tried to restore people to community, even at cost to himself. I ask that we could follow that path and that you would help us see your son and your ways more clearly. In your name we pray, amen.